Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Back with me, I'm delighted to say, is the provolone of the TLS office in the sense of being a successful Italian export connected to cheese, is Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello, I liked that one. Are you happy with that one? How are you? (laughs) I'm well. Uh, We are... As you know, Thea, on our website, we do 20 questions for famous authors and we're relaunching. We had a really good one from Ursula Le Guin last year, which we yeah. republished on, yeah. um, because of her, her death. But we're going to relaunch it. So we have new questions and it ends with a quick fire round. Mm-hmm. And I thought the best way of testing these in real time would be to ask you. It's really easy. It's just, so it's just one or the other. Cool. OK, you ready? Toni Morrison or Philip Roth? Uh, Toni Morrison, because I, I'm not a fan of Philip Roth. King Lear or The Tempest? Oh, both. No, pick uh, one. Mm, te- the Tempest. Kerouac or James Baldwin? James Baldwin. Beyonce or Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan, definitely. I do not like Beyonce. Really? I do not like Beyonce. Oh. Virginia Woolf or Emily Dickinson? Ah. Virginia Woolf. Maya Angelou or Robert Frost? Uh, Robert Frost. Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones? Neither. Pick one. Oh, neither. Ashley again <laughs> or Philip K. Dick? The former. Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Angela Carter? I know you can say. Uh, Angela Carter. Yes. Finally, Sorry Agatha... to be so predictable. No, that's OK. Agatha Christie <laughs> or Arthur Conan Doyle? Doyle. Yes, well done. If you're interested in those, those questions will be asked on our website. Do check it out. I kind of agree with about 50% of them. I'm going to do that to you next week. Okay. Oh, no, because now you know them. I know them anyway. Oh, Coming up on the show this week, how easy is it to confuse Charlotte Bronte with Jane Eyre? And is it a uniformly good sign for a novelist when their character breaks free from their fictional confines? The TLS this week muses on the mingling and mangling of fiction and autobiography, and Catherine Hughes will be on hand to discuss the case of Bronte in particular. It's easy, I know I do it, to focus on Shakespeare the peerless playwright. But he was, of course, an author of sonnets too. And they tend to get people excited, promising to conceal and reveal aspects of this shadowy figure's autobiography. There's that blend of fact and fiction again. Catherine Craig will be in the studio to discuss new books on Shakespeare the Sonneteer. And to change tack a little, we will reflect on the Ukrainian uprising that began in November 2013 and used the power of social media to fuel a revolution. How did it happen and what will happen next? Kate Brown has written about this and will tell us more. When Charlotte Bronte published Jane Eyre in 1847, she did so under the pseudonym Curra Bell, a name devised both to conceal her real name, because she thought justifiably that critics were prejudiced against female authors, and to preserve her actual initials, CB. In that sense, Charlotte Bronte was both visible and invisible at the same time, and it was taken, as these things always seem to be, as a gauntlet. To complicate matters, she added a subtitle to the fiction, an autobiography. And so the chase was on to unveil the real author of this book described as preeminently anti-Christian, immoral and sexually improper, as well as, to anyone who was really honest with themselves, extraordinarily good. 
Ever since, a tendency has persisted to see author and work as neatly overlaid, to seek to expose the real life in every fold of the fiction, and to conflate utterly text and context. This is true in literature more broadly, of course. Think of the much more recent hunt for the real Elena Ferrante. But the case of Jane Eyre is something of a prototype in the game. And as Catherine Hughes shows in this week's paper, reviewing a motley selection of recent works on Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte, the game is far from over. Catherine Hughes joins us in the studio now to cry, I imagine, in utter exasperation, the author is dead, long live the author. Absolutely. <laughs> I like the word motley there. <laughs> a motley crew. A motley was a motley crew. <laughs> Did you find them a motley crew of books? Uh, they, they weren't the... Str- OK, I can be honest. Yeah, they but please be honest. <laughs> it wasn't the strongest selection of books. So it's, 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 it's a very interesting kind of sort of task you have. Sometimes, actually, you can write a more interesting piece out of books that are actually just not super, super interesting. But this should be the goal. This should be the great year for Bronte, shouldn't, shouldn't it? We should be well. I mean, there are a few because the Brontes, the, the anniversary is going on and on. And Believe on. me, we we started in eight, in in sixteen for Charlotte Bronte, and we're going right the way on to twenty because that's Anne Bronte. We we have you know five glorious years of Bronte to remember. Okay, that's good. I refer to Bronte as a kind of exemplar in this kind of cat and mouse game, and I suppose the analogy is quite apt in that only really one of those is, is, is playing, the other sort of fighting. But she was assailed Charlotte Bronte on all sides, first in terms of trying to discover who the real author was, and then secondly in, in sort of forcing the protagonist and the author to be the same person. Yes, I mean, I think it's always a problem for, for women writers. It's 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 yeah. not just Charlotte I mean, you think about Jane Austen, mm. by a lady, and then the hunt was on to find out who, who she who she really was. So we have it here with Charlotte Bronte. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's something, it's something to do with being a woman writer. I mean, if you think about Jane Austen, you know, by a lady, that immediately provokes all sorts of excitement. And I think, again, here, because although Carabelle is nominally a, a male name, I think everybody realised mm. straight away that it's by a woman. That's completely kind of intriguing. You know, who is this person, this kind of person with sort of transgender kind of identity but whose writing has the most extraordinary female voice the kind of female voice you haven't heard before rebellious uh, not very nice sexual longing and actually very very kind of cutting you know the, the voice of Jane Eyre is actually she's often not a very nice narrator and so it's kind of completely intriguing there's this not nice woman speaking out but she appears to be going under a, a man's name. You know, what's going on? And is that deliberate? You can make this charge against Ferrante that she plays the literary game. She creates the interest in order to sort of stoke the fires in terms of people's uh, views of, of, of the author. Do you think this is a game that, that, that Bronte's playing here? She wants people to get interested and intrigued, you know, the autobiography of, of Jane Eyre. How much, how much does she does she want this, uh, this, this, this degree of attention? No, I don't think she's conscious of it. Um... I think it's it's actually her her publishers who suggest that she calls uh, it an autobiography, and she goes along with that suggestion. So on the title page it says autobiography edited by Carabelle, but that's her publisher's idea. Mm. I think they're absolutely hip to it. They're co so alive to the fact that you're going to create this kind of extraordinary excitement about what's real, what's not real, who's who. I don't think she did. No, I think. I mean, it's very easy to to um, imagine her some sort of naive who rarely went outside Yorkshire. That's clearly not true. But I think there was a naivety there as well. And I think, like so many of us, you know, I speak as, a, as an author, we both sort of long for a claim and absolutely hate it when it comes. And I think, you know, she was wrestling with that as well. You know, she wants people to know who she is, but on the other hand, it's absolutely unbearable to feel that you're going to be picked over in public. In, in a sense, the naivety that you mentioned it, it's it's on the part of the reader as well though because certainly when she was first published you almost can't blame people for for just jumping to the the conclusion that this must be autobiographical because it was so it was probably the first one of the earliest times that we've had such psychological depth and and truth from a a woman i think george henry lewis described it as the first woman rather than just a pattern i think that's absolutely right i mean the, the, that voice it sounds i mean it it sounds like she's jumped off the page she's saying you she addresses mm. the reader as yeah. you you if you knew what it was like in the red room when I was tied to a chair as a 10-year-old and punished, if you knew what it was like to walk into Thornfield and see all the ca- all the candles and all the mirrors, you too would be dazzled. It's an extraordinary kind of intimate voice. In a way that Austin never was. Austin, no. Austin mm. had, a narrat- had a narratorial voice that was kind of arch, but it yeah. wasn't personal. Absolutely. So 
Austen is quite removed. There's a sense of a narrator as a sort of constructed kind of voice. Of course, one immediately has to say the Charlotte Rodney and Jane I mean, yes, it does sound very real, but I mean, how real do you really think Mr Rochester is? How many Mr Rochesters do you really think there were walking around or hopping around the Yorkshire Dales? I mean, not really. So that's the really interesting thing. It starts off with this kind of absolutely believable voice of a child. And we've all been that damaged child. I think that's that's part of the appeal. And then she gradually takes us into a world where actually most of us haven't met met Mr Rochester and most of us haven't found you know that we're in danger of having our houses burnt down by um, our employer's um, first wife thank heavens <laughs> so it's, it's a really interesting kind of progression from absolute psychological truth to absolute sort of fan- fantasy and how angry you tell a great story which you should you should say again about what happens when Thackeray came to visit how angry was she was she was Bronte when people started saying you're you're Jane Eyre Oh, well, she's absolutely furious. You're absolutely right. 1851, um, she goes to see a, a, a lecture given by William Thackeray, who's a great hero of hers. And uh, he comes down at the end of the public lecture and says to his mum, who's also in the audience, Mother, let me introduce you to Jane Eyre. And she is, Charlotte Bronte is absolutely furious. She doesn't say anything then and there because she's polite. She's a vicar's daughter. But the next day, she manages to buttonhole him in the um, drawing room of her publishers. And she is just furious. She's only four foot ten. She's a tiny little woman. But George Smith, her publisher, describes her as being white with anger. Literally, this, you know, she's, she only comes up to Thackeray's elbow, but she's telling him what for. How dare you? And she says to him, how would you like it if I called you after the name of one of your characters? And I think, of course, that's a very interesting point. We do tend to mix women writers well, up indeed, with their characters. Has, is, there, is there a male Victorian author even who you'd never confuse? They tend to con- uh, conceal their identities. Or... No. But is there any central character? Because Dickens, there was David Copperfield, but that's, mm. a, deliberate, that's mm. a deliberate thing, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's kind of making that a partially an autobiography, the CDDC thing. Do we ever really blur the male authors and their creations? Is this a sort of act of mis- sort of concealed misogyny in some way? Well, I, th- I mean, I think Thea's right. By and large, people are writing un- under their own name, so that's that. You know, there's, there's, you don't have that excitement about mm. identity. Yeah, it's clear who the person is. I think yes. Um, the, you know, it's unusual enough for a woman to be writing, so there's a massive interest in what kind of woman writes, and that means you're very, very interested in finding about out about the author and necessarily because women you know had much much more limited lives yeah. clearly and we you know of course Charlotte Bronte went out of Yorkshire she went to Brussels on two occasions but still it's a very very parochial life so of course the temptation is to read the two in relation Is it a tribute though? I mean if, if you know you have this great novelist saying here is a woman who embodies the character that everybody has come to recognise I mean is there, is there a sort of summer, why did Thackeray do it do you think? Was he being mean? Was he being playful? Was he... It's hard to say, Look, isn't it? poor man, he's just given a public lecture. And I mean, <laughs> I'm, sure, a mistake. I'm sure you stick, I'm sure you've given public lectures. One comes off the podium and you just can't think what to say. And what you're actually thinking is, was I good? How good am I? That's what you're actually thinking. And then you see this woman and she's an awkward little creature, Charlotte Bronte. She's socially awkward. I mean, what? Yeah. yeah. And you've got your mum there. I mean, it's Yeah, a I mean, it's a strange scenario. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> going, don't say Jane Eyre, don't say Jane Eyre, don't say Jane Eyre. Here's Jane Eyre. No! Um, let's talk about um, Villette, because you mentioned in Brussels there why do we think that this hasn't why does this this kind of conflation of of of, of protagonist and author not happen to the same extent in Villette because I mean it's that's arguably closer to to her real life experience and she has the same first person perspective that she has in Jane Eyre there. um I, th- I think it's because actually uh Jane Eyre is is just the more popular book it's the first book it's a function of the market it also has this I mean it lays down a template doesn't it for a sort of Mills and Boone kind of romance I mean if you do read Mills and Boone you'll find in effect it's it's Jane Eyre I mean yeah. that is that is the the story and so therefore and of course a- we all do read Mill, Mills and Boone don't we I once wrote an essay on precisely what you just said Oh, really? Did you? <laughs> okay. The Mills and Boone is Jane Eyre being reclaimed? Well, is, is all of that sort of type mm. of literature. Yeah. Did you read a lot of Mills and Boone for that? <clears throat> I drew my conclusions and I did dipped in and out. You dipped in and out, <laughs> as they might say themselves. Everything's a... Everything's a... Um, 
I mean, Vanessa is a much harder book, isn't it? You know, yeah. we, don't, we don't actually know at the end whether she gets her chap. In fact, know. she probably doesn't, does she? I think he went down. You know, I think he's down Davy Jones' locker. I mean, yeah. we don't know. Um, it's 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 much less easy. It's it's a sort of broken back novel in a sense. You know, it has a very odd narrative structure. Mm-hmm. It's often described as the first sort of modernist novel. So it's very much about interior experience, but that sits rather oddly with a very well realised. It's a rewrite book. of her, her first attempt at a novel, isn't it? Is there a, the professor? Did she originally? Did she, did she write that? Have I mis, misheard that? Is no, there professor a, is a distinct book, but uh, it is also set in Belgium. Oh, so it's a bit. It's, okay, yeah. okay. But and do you think? I mean, the sophisticated judgment is it's a better book than, than Jane. <sighs> It's a, it's a more interesting I think book. It's much more interesting. Yeah. yeah. Precisely because it, it's it's an open-ended book. Yeah. It's, it, you know, I mean, it feels very modern, doesn't it? Mm. It's a modernist book. It, it feels open-ended, ambiguous. It could go in all sorts of places. We never quite know what's going on. And it's kind of hard strange? to discover Jane Eyre again because Jane Eyre comes with a lot of cultural freight in a way that they let. I imagine a lot of people have never read. I mean, it, it's not whenever at, at university it's not discussed. When you're at school, I, I find Jane Eyre is this sort of dominant cultural mm. thing. You know, idea of Rochester and the Mad Woman in the Attic. And it's all so much easier to turn into marketable oh. stuff, though. Whereas Villette is, for all the reasons Catherine you were explaining, is is much harder to contain and package. It's really interesting what you say about Jane Eyre and how we all know we all because I reread Jane Eyre when I was writing this piece and of course I've read it many times but what one always forgets is there is this very long section where Rochester isn't in it Uh, if you remember she goes off she wanders on the moors and she bumps into her cousin St John Rivers who's a a rather upright sort of missionary clergyman and two rather drippy sisters and that takes up a lot of space in the book now you never see that in the films you never see that in the television adaptations. So there's something about Jane Eyre that, that, I mean, it's absolutely right, it does lend itself to commercial product, but it it lends itself also to quite kind of um, radical excising. You can take that middle section out. And how did you feel when you reread it? I know know I'm supposed to, this is the awful thing, I know I'm supposed to say, you know, that I feel that the extra bits add so much richness and depth uh, and, you know, and give a much fuller reading experience. They're so boring. I mean, nobody... <laughs> Did you could... skim? No, I didn't skim, well because, because I'm a good reviewer. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it's just, it's just so dull, so dull, so tedious. And, you know, that's what one forgets. You, you will search very hard for St. John Rivers in any of the adaptations. That's interesting. And it's just become known almost as a, as a symbol. And was that true for her life? Did she feel that she was always known as... Jane Eyre, even as time progressed, even as she produced other other books, I think she did, and it it rankled, and it certainly rankled with the man that she married. She famously married her uh, father's curate at the end of her life. He was furious. He couldn't bear that sort of thing. In fact, he would pretend not to to not understand what people were talking about <laughs> when they tried to mention uh, Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte in the same sentence. He'd sort of go, "I'm I'm sorry, I don't." <laughs> Which what you're you talking about. Which is why, on a concluding point, it's so interesting that someone would choose to write a spin-off novel from his perspective as one of the books that you've reviewed in, in this spread. And we have to leave that as a kind of a tantalising thread and hope that people will go and read the piece because there are two bizarre spin-off novels that you've looked at here. Absolutely. Two odd novels in which uh, novelists have chosen to sort of inhabit a, a role um, Bell Nichols in the case of one and Mr Rochester in the case of the other and rewrite the whole plot but I think what's interesting is maybe not so much the, those works but the fact that something about Charlotte Bronte and Jane Eyre that just pulls us all in and makes us want to have our own go at it to rewrite to fiddle to play with the boundaries I think that's a good place to leave it Catherine Hughes thank you Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Say much. Catherine Craig begins her review of two books on Shakespeare's sonnets with a quote from Helen Vendler that those sonnets work in readers' minds like a lightning rod for nuttiness. Shakespeare is a notoriously elusive biographical subject, of course, especially given his cultural centrality. The sonnets are a particularly fertile source for that type of frenzied textual ferreting that can lead to conclusions about his mental state, his social status, his sexuality and so on. This is not least because sonnets are a very self-conscious medium, aware of the ludic relationship between writer, purported subject and reader. Here, for example, is the first bit from Sonnet 136, in which Shakespeare continually puns on his own name. If thy soul check thee that I come so near, swear to thy blind soul that I was thy will, and will thy soul knows is admitted there, thus far for love my love suit sweet fulfil. Will will fulfil the treasure of thy love, I fill it full with wills and my will one, in things of great receipt with ease we prove among a number one is reckoned none. I apologise to Shakespeare for my reading of that. So what should we be thinking about in response to the sonnets? Catherine Craig joins Thea and me in the studio now. Catherine, welcome to you. Thank you. Do you think the sonnets are overlooked as part of the Shakespearean canon? I, I did a whole term on Shakespeare at university. They were never mentioned. Do you think they're sort of oddly sort of pushed to one side? I think I think they are. And I think part of the reason for that is that lots of editions of Shakespeare have tended to push them to one side. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the Riverside edition prints them right at the back, um, which suggests that there's something that you perhaps come to after you've finished reading the plays. Which is odd because they were written, presumably, in the formative period. I mean, re- they, they start relatively early. They're written in the formative period that's of right. him as a playwright. That's right. That's Roman right. Yeah, so lots of them were written in the 1590s. They're not published until 1609. So so chronologically, it makes no sense at all to, to put them um, to put them at the back. Um, and I think nobody would have been more surprised than Shakespeare to know that his plays are the things that people remember, because of course it was really poetry um, in the 1590s and early 1600s, which had the reputation for a more aristocratic, more lasting, more permanent literary form, whereas plays were really the ephemera, and that's something that Shakespeare writes about in the sonnets themselves. So what do we know about the circumstances of, of the writing because they were published in 1609, so that's that's he's still alive. Is he still alive? He's yes. still alive in 1609. Of yes. course he is. So, yes. so what do we know about the circumstances of the writing and then their publication? Well, we don't know a lot um, about <laughs> <As> that. <ever. laughs> yeah, of course, <laughs> there's been a lot of, of speculation that uh, the 1609 volume wasn't authorised at all. So it was it was put together by um, a publisher called Thomas Thorpe, who may or may not have been um, unscrupulous and you know making a, a commercial um, enterprise out of the the sonnet. Um, so we can't say um, we can't say for sure, and of course there's that very riddling dedication yes. at the start of the 1609 that says the only well. begetter of these ensuing sonnets, Mr. W. H. Mm, that's right. And who that's was right. Mr. W. H. Well, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> Lots of theories. Um, one is that W. H. Mr. W. H. is Henry Rothesley, the Earl of Southampton, um, to whom Shakespeare had previously dedicated um, his tremendously successful poem Venus and Adonis, um, and Another um, theory is that it's William um, William Pembroke, um, dedicatee of the first folio. Um, perhaps um, a more um, compelling suggestion is that WH is a misprint for William Shakespeare himself. Um, Do you think that's right? So, so what's the idea that the publisher 
may or may not have been doing this with consent and therefore tries to sort of conceal his malfeasance by dedicating it to Shakespeare, even if he doesn't have the full permission yeah, to do it. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And the phrase to the only begetter of these sonnets picks up on a metaphor in the first 126 sonnets, which is all about um, procreation, um, encouraging the young man to whom these sonnets are dedicated to to have a child. Um, so that sonnet, that, that idea of, of begetting perhaps picks up on that that metaphor and, and makes it into to something in the dedication. So the first hundred odd, more than a hundred are dedicated, are addressed to the fair youth, That's right. who's a yes. man. Yes. This is yeah. dedicated, yeah. the begetter, to a mister, whoever the mister may yes. be. Yes. How yeah. this happens a lot, I imagine, how keen should we be to start drawing inferences about sexuality, about the relationship of, of love between between people of the same gender. Is there anything there to, to, to look at, do you feel? Well, certainly lots of people have, yeah, <laughs> as indeed. you can imagine. And this is something that preoccupied editors, especially in the 18th century. So, for example, Edmund Malone, um, Stevens, editors in the, the 1700s were, as you might expect, tremendously exercised about this, this possibility and went so far as to change the pronoun in some of the sonnets from, from he to she really? in order to clean them up, as it, as it were. <laughs> I mean, it seems, it seems to me that no, it's it's impossible to uh, to say for sure that these sonnets are autobiographical. We know that Shakespeare was a tremendously skilled ventriloquist, um, and sonnets are often playful, aren't they? In terms of the voice of the person speaking and, and the person to whom they're addressed. There's often yeah, a lot of game being played. Certainly, yeah, certainly. There's a, they're very much um, they're very much in that that spirit. I think what they do reveal, though, is something of the way in which it's possible, I guess, to be playful um, addressing another man. As a man, um, it reveals something, I think, about bonds between men more generally, perhaps, in the, the period. But I think it's, to my mind, it's a bit of a blind alley, I think, to try and sort of trace those autobiographical answers definitively. Tempting though it is. Presumably that the ways of reading the poems has changed substantially over time there must have been kind of almost cyclical movements to identify the 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 autobiographical and then to not I mean I'm thinking of the turn of the last century when people like Yeats and Eliot were writing a lot about the persona in poetry Mm. did that sort of bring about a, a fresh perspective did people say oh no he's just you know he's the first kind of Eliot in that sense Maybe so. Um, makes me think of Oscar Wilde's yeah. story as well, the portrait of, of Mr. WH, which I, I, I talked about a little bit in, in my piece. Um, and Wilde is, is thinking, you know, very, it's a really funny story, but it's also, I think, a, a tragic story. And it's about what happens when you get obsessed with these questions, as, as scholars have. And at the end of that story, two scholars, Cyril Graham and Mr. Erskine, are, are dead. Um, and they've died um, for their theory that Mr. WH um, is a young actor um, mm. called Willie Hughes and they, they go into the sonnets in, in great detail. A man in hue or hues in his controlling from Sonnet 20. Every alien pen has got my use hues. Um, so it's possible to... to but he does pun. I mean, to, I mean, the will thing that I ineptly read, there was a, that's, that's a punning on his own name, isn't it? Yeah, that's, a deliberate... that's right. That's right. And of course the only name really that it's possible to find in the sonnets is, is Will's yeah. name himself, despite the fact um, that he says in Sonnet 81, your name from hence immortal life shall have you being the dedicatee, the, the addressee, but actually, as, as you say, it's Will himself, especially in Sonnets 135 and 136, that is, is most, most prominent, whoever hath her wish thou hast thy will and will to boot and will in overplus it's will who's in overplus so so, so either he's just i mean maybe is he just making a joke and wanting us to be both interested but then be pushed away because there's nothing really to be i was thinking astrophil and stella the the sydney sequence that was aimed at penelope rich wasn't it but was that genuine it's hard to say that is that a genuine attempt to woo someone or is it someone operating within the realms of courtly devices that they're very consciously just having fun with. Well, that, that, that sequence, um, I think we're on safer territory um, in okay. identifying the addressee as, as, as Penelope Rich. But what's different, I think, between these two sonnet sequences is that um, Sydney, Sydney is very cool and very detached, um, I think, from his, from, from his addressee, from, from Penelope Rich. And of course, um, Stella, uh, the name that he gives to, to Penelope Rich, is a star. And Astrophil, 
um, Philip Sidney's persona means lover of a star. So there's that detachment, I think, of, of address between the two. And what Shakespeare is doing is just dismantling all of that detachment and politeness, which comes from Petrarch originally, I think, the idea of the cool, icy maiden and the, the ardent lover. Um, and the lover of the, the sonnets, the dark lady who appears in the latter yeah. um, part of the, the collection is anything but cool, anything but icy, quite the reverse. But does the existence of the dark lady rather show that the, the fair youth uh, is a poetic device? Because... It's 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 a sequence ultimately that addresses both men and women, romantically. If you want to see it that way, which might may suggest it's nothing to do with the poet's own sexual desires. It's yeah, just it's just sure. a, it's a, it's just a play of conventions in, in, in both directions. Yeah, well, the the sequence as a whole has often been read um, as the story of a love triangle. So I would say that the latter, the latter sequence of poems, if it is a sequence, that's another question addressed to the. Is it not even clear that it's a sequence? No, no. Um, we don't know anything ever. This is what academics like, isn't well, it? Well, that's what my students say. You get to week two, <laughs> yeah. and they say, "Hang on, are you going to say that these all of these poems are about anxiety? They're about uncertainty. Is there nothing that we can we can yeah. say for What's the answer? Sure? <laughs> that's right. What's the answer? Um, that's yeah. That's um, the tradition of sort of thinking about how to how to order these sonnets. That's that's another another interesting story, I think. So what order should we read them in? What happens if you place the Dark Lady sonnets earlier in the sequence? And your question, what light does the, the latter sequence shed on the first? Does it make it less authentic because the, the addressee is different? What happens when the whole sequence isn't just addressed to one lover, as, as Sidney says? But also at the time, I suppose, when two men could be close and say things to one another... You see this in the plays, actually, I, I, I think. Men addressed each other in the time. They're more physical, arguably, than they are now. Love. Yeah, there's, is there not a there's an anachronism to thought that, that when two men address each other in loving terms today, it's easy to infer sexuality, homosexuality. In, in 500 years ago, that was less straightforward, I suspect, wasn't it? Yeah, well, you think of something like um, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, yeah. for example, or Love's Labour is Lost. These are plays very much about friendships between men. And interestingly, in both of these plays, there's a lot of thinking going on about sonnets. Yeah. Several of the sonnets in the 1609 volume appear in Love's Labour is Lost. In The Two Gentlemen of Verona, um, the character Proteus, who's a very, very unscrupulous lover, and he gives some advice to Thurio, who's trying to, to woo Sylvia, and he says, oh, write her a sonnet, and it'll catch her like bird lime. If you do it properly, <laughs> it will ensnare her, her desires. Um, so I think these, these questions run through a lot of the, perhaps especially the comedies. Again, yeah. I suppose that's that's why it's so strange that um, the, the sonnets in particular do seem to have been sort of bracketed and pushed to the end of reading about Shakespeare first to mm. do the plays, as you say, because they they are in a way sort of almost like intense dramatizations in real time, aren't they? There's a, there's a bit in uh, your piece where you say the reader relives the speaker's urgent thoughts in the present, reperforming each short action by momentarily becoming the you of the poem. It must give us so much insight into what it is that he wants to achieve in his drama as well in his plays. Mm. And I think the way that it it does that is by thinking about the act of, of reading or the act of reception. There's, there's lots and lots of language in the sonnets about about the theatre, you know, what it means to be an actor, what it means to follow yeah. a script, what it means to adopt a disguise or to adopt someone else's voice. But they also, as you say, they have a directness, I think, which puts the reader very much on the spot. It makes us think about what it means to read and what it means to, to receive the, the poems. And they've often been described as confessional, but I suppose in order to have a confession, you need both a confessor and a confessant. It's a, a sort of double double mm. process. And I think perhaps the reason why the, the sonnets have been so much loved and so worked over with such anxiety has been that directness of address and the way that it it puts us very much it challenges us i think very directly as readers reading this piece talking to you it makes you want to go and read them again well that's good yeah because i i do think that they as i said i slightly missed out on them i, I think and they are they're almost postmodern, i suppose aren't they because they're very conscious of their own literary status they're very game playing they're very exploratory of ideas in a way that you'd associate possibly with something a, a, a bit later. They're quite they sophisticated are. things. They are. And the critic Joel Feynman wrote New Sonnet, New Eye. 
So every time you read another sonnet, there's another I, um, as well perhaps as another another you. So it's that sense, I think, of the speaker fracturing yeah. between the sonnets, even sometimes between the quatrains of of the sonnet, and that is very postmodern, isn't it? That yeah. a subject, a speaking subject, isn't isn't stable, but is very much well, sort of multiple. It's great. Well, I hope people go and read. I'm going to go and do that uh, as well. Catherine Craig, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. On the evening of November the 21st, 2013, Mustafa Nayem, a Ukrainian reporter, posted a 30-word comment on his Facebook page that led to the toppling of the Ukrainian government. You see, Facebook has finally contributed something useful to the world. It is Kate Brown's contention that the protest, which began on Facebook and ended up on Kiev's main square, the Maidan, was one of history's first smartphone uprisings, powered by photos captured on thousands of tiny cameras and hurtled around the globe onto millions of miniature screens. She is reviewing Marcy Shaw's The Ukrainian Night, which tells the tale of what happened next. The impromptu society in the square, the violent attacks by Ukrainian special forces. Throughout, the image of the Maidan sits, both as a city square and also a social media space. Kate Brown joins Thea and me now. Kate, welcome. Thank you for having me. Why did this, on the face of it, modest objection to an administration's failure effectively to ally with the EU lead to a... To a Revolution. What was the what was the thing that, that that took it from a thirty-one word Facebook post to something more significant? Do you think? Well, as you pointed out, Mustafa Nayem posted this. You know, likes don't count. <laughs> show up on the square and protest uh, this failure to sign the association agreement, which, as you point out, didn't really mean that much. It was just pointing Ukraine in the direction of the EU, and not so many. You know, some young people showed up. They think about a hundred, a hundred and fifty. It would have passed in and out of history as a little blip had not the special forces of the Ukrainian military, the Berhuch, been posted on buildings around the, the big central square, the Maidan in Kiev, and they shot at protesters and, and uh, injured several and, and I think killed a few. I, I can't quite remember what the death toll was on that night. And that went immediately, those media images... Um, captured on people's cell phones, went out. And then the next day, tens of thousands, and by the end, this is in November of 13, by the end of the year, there was 100,000 people camped out in that square protesting uh, President Yanukovych's administration. So the mishandling was, was, I suppose, the primary agency, you're you're saying, in a sense. Exactly, yeah. Um, And then how much can we say now that social media... And there's, there's an argument that people want this to be true for the Arab Spring as well, was an agency for truthfulness against the malign powers of, of state propaganda. Do you think that's a fair reflection or is it inevitably more complicated than that? Well, I think after this past year in which we, we know that Russian trolls meddled in the US elections and in the British elections um, Uh, for Brexit, that we can no longer talk about a transparent social media that works um, for the little guy, for the man in the street, or for whoever um, wants it to to work in a certain way, that um, just the the simple optimization logarithms that connect likes with likes, for instance, even if there's no insidious conspiracy behind it, but the, the way social media works is that people get directed towards them, um, views of other people who they're most likely to uh, align themselves with, and so we have these um, polar, you know, these polar divisions between uh, elements of society who are only looking at their own point of view and the point of view of those people like them. Um, but then, on top of that, we know now after the investigation um, into the U.S. elections that um, Facebook and the Russian equivalent of Facebook for Kontaktia are selling um, spots so that you can have your point of view um, shot into the um, inboxes of, of millions of people. Um, we also know that um, Russian probably government forces are, are some kind of, um, you know, we're not quite sure, shadowy forces or trolls were purchasing um, ads and purchasing voices on social media that were made to look like they were genuine, like they were fake people 
presenting fake news. And so do we think that Maiden was, to an extent, then a, a turning point or, or a catalyst after which certainly the Russian government realised how important it was that they take control? And, and so did they sort of ramp it up then? Yeah, I think I think that might be just the point when they realise, wow, this is really effective. And if, you know, if you follow the media and the the, the question of, of Ukraine and independent Ukraine um, a little further back and you go to 2008 when there was the so-called Orange Revolution, which, you know, the people I talked to say that was a real people protest. That really felt genuine. Um, but what the Russians complained about at that time was that there was all kinds of American and, and European NGOs that were involved in rallying, getting out the vote, um, pumping in money for campaigns of certain candidates over other candidates. They tended to be pro-Western candidates over um, pro-Russian candidates. And the Russians complained bitterly about this meddling of the West, specifically the United States, in Ukrainian elections. And after that, you see, starting in you know, 2012 and 13, Russians start uh, pass a law about you know, uh, foreign agents operating in Russia, and they start kicking out uh, NGOs, um, you know, the uh, Foundation for Freedom, the Carnegie Foundation, long-standing um, agencies that have been working in Russia, you know, were suddenly sort of pushed out. And with them, people who got grants, you know, Russians um, who were in um, nonprofits, uh, you know, activist organizations that got grants from the West, they too were forced to either shut down or leave or go to jail. So we can see this build up to 2014, which is generating this idea that the first idea is that, yeah, these this kind of um, meddling works, soft power that um, is uh, just takes a little bit of money and, a, and some, you know, feet on the ground, but you can do it a lot of it through cyberspace. And um, second, that it's um, both a tactic that works and it's something to um, you can maybe direct at another country. Does Marcy Shaw's book, The Ukrainian Art, do you think this engages with a search for truth enough? Because presumably neither side is entirely innocent in this area. The, the, the protests themselves have an interest in shaping a narrative that might not always be 100% accurate. Do you think the book is sceptical enough of, of information in this area? I wish it had been. I wish that Marcy Shore had been a little bit more skeptical of her sources. Uh, she, it's basically um, a series of interviews with mostly Ukrainian intellectuals um, who tell her, you know, this this story of a of a of a beautiful moment of an uprising where people came together in the square and they rolled in pianos and they set up soup kitchens and. Um, uh, you know, health clinics and libraries, and they um, fought against, you know, it's a, it's a David and Goliath story, and they fought and they won. Um, that's part of the story, certainly. But what what social media does is it sends rumors and conjecture and fake news, and it sends it riveting around the world. And what historians can do, and scholars generally can do, is is check the, the sources. They can source those rumors, they can source the conjecture and find out if that's true. And um, I wish Marcy Shore had done that because, you know, there's, there's lots of things you hear when you're there, when you're on the ground, and I, and I always wonder about them. And well, uh, I think that's our job is to go and find out if they're true or not. In a sense, it sounds like she's fallen foul of the, you know, the echo chamber thing that, that is, is said of social media more broadly, that you kind of, you confirm what you believe uh, yes. again and again. Right, this, this optimization logarithm. Exactly. Exactly. And then the other problem we have is that we have a long tradition, and you can, this dates from the 19th century, of you know Brits and Americans going to East Europe and using it as a scrim on which to project uh, notions of civilization, democracy, you know, liberalism, you know, you name it. And usually East Europe is seen as this place that lags behind, you know, like. There's whole books written about the origins of backwardness and what they mean by you know the backward space is, is you name it East Europe, and um, and in some ways this book is is written on, in that vein, and this therefore is a freedom revolution um, that was you know could have happened in the 18th or 19th centuries. It's happening now in 2014 in Ukraine, and and I just don't think it's that simple of you know the 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 
a choice between East and West, um, a choice between, you know, she calls it a civilizational choice. Because is, is it fair to say, I mean, one of the things that, that people who are, I suppose, pro-Russian or anti-Ukrainian would say at least, this type of revolution makes strange bedfellows of, of the liberal intelligentsia with people who have a history of pro-Nazism nationalism. You know, the, the, the movement against Yanukovych is, is in some ways a nationalistic movement which would have carried with it all sorts of unsavory characters, wouldn't it? That's right. That's right. And I think that, you know, um, Marcy Shore quotes um, uh, Alexei Radinsky, who says, you know, what this is, is really um, typifies a pan-European malady, this meeting in the square of left-wing and right-wing voices, this popularism, populism that's in a sense confused. It, it has both, you know, sort of radical socialist ideas and, and radical right-wing xenophobia all mixed up into one. There could be nothing more European and North American about that right now. I, I don't think that yeah. Ukraine is any different in that way from um, where I sit right now in Washington, D.C. You know, and when I travel around Ukraine, I see all these empty plinths. These are, you know, the bases of statues of, of removed heroes. Um, and most since the Maidan, there's been a real push to, um, to make the martyrs of Maidan and morph them into the martyrs of World War II and create a unifying Ukrainian national identity. And, and this identity is, is neither Russian or Ukrainian in, or, or Jewish or um, Polish or, you know, it's a very cosmopolitan identity, but it's one that's sort of founded on the, on, on a notion of patriotism and sacrifice that comes out of the long Soviet tradition of, of uh, memorializing World War II. So it, it reverberates deeply. And here I am, you know, in Baltimore, there's, you know, a number of empty plinths of fallen Confederate heroes. And we're having this same discussion about who are our heroes yeah. now and maybe we have to take some down and is the opposition in 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 ukraine is it as kind of generationally split as we as as we might assume obviously the means initial means of organizing were youthful ones is it sort of a pro-europe youth versus a, a, a more nostalgic pro-russia older generation or is it really not that simple yeah, i don't think i mean i think those kinds of polarities you know of, of you know youth versus age and uh, east versus west Russia versus Europe are, are too simple. I mean, I think when some people went out to Maidan and there was people of all age groups there, they were there because they wanted, for them, Europe meant good roads and a strong internet connection, steady jobs. For other people, it meant the, the freedom to speak their mind. Here we are four years later reflecting on Maidan, and I think if one were to take a poll, you'd find few people who really thought that Maidan was good and useful um you know what do they have as an aftermath the, the protest morphed into revolution the revolution into civil war and the civil war left the country yet poor yet more divided you know there's this whole separatist region that's not controlled by the ukrainian government but crimea of course is, is has been annexed by russia and uh, because the donbass isn't voting now that was where the majority party um, had its base. Now the parliament is fragmented and and paralyzed, and so the executive has grown in power, which for some people means that these sort of big oligarchs, you know, with their bankers, have taken over. Parallels to the Arab Spring are, are kind of there as well. Something that sounds very optimistic on social media as a beginning necessarily breaks against the complexities of reality. At the end of your review, we'll have to leave it on this point, but I'm interested in your thoughts. You say that Maidan could be a portent of the future. You've already drawn parallels with the US and, and, and Europe. I think there is an Arab Spring parallel as well. What does what If this is the future, what does that mean, do, do, do you think, uh, Kate? What what does this show what future revolutions will look like? Well, I, I, you know, it doesn't look good. I think there's <laughs> um, many people who want a voice they they send their voice up into social media but they, they you know they don't necessarily go to squares and go to physical places as they used to do and i think we'll see more and more revolutions like that and i think we'll, what we're seeing is this disembodied somewhat inchoate protest in many places including in the united states right now 
where people are um, tired of their you know state that's weakened by leaders whose main goal and power appears to have been to pave the way for corporate profits you know by emasculating the judiciary and bankrupting federal coffers and uh, downsizing the social welfare state. And this, I think, Ukraine exemplifies and maybe leads the way for other parts of the world. And, and the forces that we can, as, as people in democracies that we have to fight against these powers are, they, you know, I think they feel at the moment like, oh, I can, vo- I can you know, express my voice on social media, but then they have this empty sort of nothing behind it. So what are people grasping for, you know, a nationalism, you know, this or a you know, strong sense of patriotism doesn't solve any problems, but at least it makes them feel better. Well, yeah, and that may well be the spirit of, of the age. Uh, Kate Brown, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for your time. I read this and I, it is depressing in a, in a way because it's very Arab Spring, isn't it? That mm. Everyone says, oh, I remember when the first, the, I don't know which country it was, which was the first part of the Arab Spring, it was called the Twitter, Tunisia. was it the Twitter Revolution of yeah. Tunisia? And yeah. went, the Twitter revolution, yeah. everyone's tweeting and gathering together in solidarity. And then, of course, part of Tunisia may have turned out okay, but virtually every other country it's happened has ended badly. And it yeah. sounds like Ukraine is doing exactly the same thing. There feels like momentum, mm. but also you get change and the change isn't real change. Mm. It's, just, it's just shifting the deck chairs a bit. Yeah, and what's sad is that whenever something like that happens, we're now so used to it that we do just go, oh, well, it's only a matter of time before it runs aground yeah. or, you know, dissipates or comes to nothing. I think um, the way Kate Kate Brown finishes her piece, her final line, is sort of the only way that you can end this sort of discussion. She says, what is the name for a freedom revolution in reverse? And that's, as she said, it's exactly what we're seeing. You know, we've got major elections coming up all over the place. I know we've talked before about the Italian elections that are coming up in March, but it's it's all of this hope and no way of containing it because there are so many different hopes. There's no there's no kind of one movement. It's open-ended <laughs> to conclude. It's complicated. It's complicated. I think that's a fair conclusion, Thea. That's all we have time for then this week. Our thanks go to Kate Brown, Catherine Craik and Catherine Hughes. You don't have to be called Catherine to get on this podcast, but it it does seem to help, doesn't it? (laughs) Three Catherines in a row. Lovely. Do go to our website, the-tls.co.uk or to your local shop to get the rest of this week's paper. The cover piece is Michael Hoffman, not called Catherine, talking about translating the novel Berlin Alexanderplatz. And there is much else to enjoy as well. Next week, we will have an interview by Michael the Dr. Keynes with novelist Gregory Normington and be commemorating the anniversary of women's suffrage. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.